Part 4 of Prelude. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 10. Up in the house, in the warm, tidy kitchen, Alice, the servant girl, was getting the afternoon tea. She was dressed. She had on a black stuffed dress that smelt under the arms, a white apron like a large sheet of paper, and a lace bow pinned onto her hair with two jetty pins. Also, her comfortable carpet slippers were changed for a pair of black leather ones that pinched her corn on her little toe something dreadful. It was warm in the kitchen. A blowfly buzzed. A fan of whitey steam came out of the kettle, and the lid kept up a rattling jig as the water bubbled. The clock ticked in the warm air, slow and deliberate, like the click of an old woman's knitting needle, and sometimes, for no reason at all, for there wasn't any breeze, the blind swung out and back, tapping the window. Alice was making watercress sandwiches. She had a lump of butter on the table, a barracuda loaf, and the cresses tumbled in a white cloth. But, propped against a butter dish, there was a dirty, greasy little book, half unstitched, with curled pages, and while she mashed the butter, she read. The dream of black beetles drawing a hearse is bad. Signifies death of one you hold near or dear, either father, husband, brother, son, or intended. If beetle crawl backwards as you watch them, it means death from fire or from great heights, such as flight of stairs, scaffolding, etc. Spiders. The dream of spiders creeping over you is good. Signifies large sum of money in near future. Should party be in family way, an easy confinement may be expected. But care should be taken in sixth month to avoid eating of probable present of shellfish. How many thousand birds I see. Oh, life, there was Miss Barrow. Alice dropped the knife and slipped the dream book under the butter dish. But she hadn't time to hide it quite, for Beryl ran into the kitchen and up to the table, and the first thing her eye lighted on were those greasy edges. Alice saw Miss Beryl's meaning little smile, and the way she raised her eyebrows and screwed up her eyes as though she were not quite sure what that could be. She decided to answer if Miss Burrell should ask her. Nothing as belongs to you, Miss. But she knew Miss Burrell would not ask her. Alice was a mild creature in reality. But she had the most marvellous retorts ready for questions that she knew would never be put to her. The composing of them and the turning of them over and over in her mind comforted her just as much as if they'd been expressed. Really, they kept her alive in places where she'd been that chivied she'd been afraid to go to bed at night with a box of matches on the chair in case she bit the tops off in her sleep, as you might say. Oh, Alice, said Miss Burrell, there's one extra to tea, so heat a plate of yesterday's scones, please, and put on the Victoria sandwich as well as the coffee cake, and don't forget to put little doilies under the plates, will you? You did yesterday, you know, and the tea looked so ugly and common. And Alice... Don't put that dreadful old pink and green cosy on the afternoon teapot again. That is only for the mornings. Really, I think it ought to be kept for the kitchen. It's so shabby and quite smelly. Put on the Japanese one. You quite understand, don't you? Miss Beryl had finished. That sing aloud from every tree, she sang as she left the kitchen, very pleased with her firm handling of Alice. Oh, Alice was wild. She wasn't one to mind being told, but there was something in the way Miss Beryl had of speaking to her that she couldn't stand. Oh, that she couldn't. It made her curl up inside, as you might say, and she fair trembled. But what Alice really hated Miss Beryl for was that she made her feel low. 
She talked to Alice in a special voice as though she wasn't quite all there. And she never lost her temper with her. Never. Even when Alice dropped anything or forgot anything important, Miss Burroughs seemed to have expected it to happen. "'If you please, Mrs. Burnell,' said an imaginary Alice as she buttered the scones, "'I'd rather not take my orders from Miss Barrow. "'I may be only a common servant girl, as doesn't know how to play the guitar, "'but this last thrust pleased her so much that she quite recovered her temper. "'The only thing to do,' she heard, as she opened the dining-room door, "'is to cut the sleeves out entirely and just have a broad band of black velvet over the shoulders instead.' Eleven. The white duck did not look as if it had ever had a head when Alice placed it in front of Stanley Burnell that night. It lay in beautifully basted resignation on a blue dish, its legs tied together with a piece of string and a wreath of little balls of stuffing around it. It was hard to say which of the two, Alice or the duck, looked the better basted. They were both such a rich colour, and they both had the same air of gloss and strain but Alice was fiery red, and the duck a Spanish mahogany. Burnell ran his eye along the edge of the carving knife. He prided himself very much upon his carving, upon making a first-class job of it. He hated seeing a woman carve. They were always too slow, and they never seemed to care what the meat looked like afterwards. Now he did. He took a real pride in cutting delicate shaves of cold beef, little wads of mutton just the right thickness, and in dividing a chicken or a duck with nice precision. "'Is this the first of the home products?' he asked, knowing perfectly well that it was. "'Yes, the butcher did not come. We have found out that he only calls twice a week.' But there was no need to apologise. It was a superb bird. It wasn't meat at all, but a kind of very superior jelly. "'My father would say,' said Burnell, this must have been one of those birds whose mother played to it in infancy upon the German flute, and the sweet strains of the dulcet instrument acted with such effect upon the infant mind. Have some more, Beryl. You and I are the only ones in this house with a real feeling for food. I am perfectly willing to state in a court of law, if necessary, that I love good food. Tea was served in the drawing-room, and Beryl, who, for some reason, had been very charming to Stanley ever since he came home, suggested a game of crib. They sat at a little table near one of the open windows. Mrs. Fairfield disappeared, and Linda lay in a rocking chair, her arms above her head, rocking to and fro. "'You don't want a light, do you, Linda?' said Beryl. She moved the tall lamp, so that she sat under its soft light. How remote they looked, those two, from where Linda sat and rocked. The green table, the polished cards, Stanley's big hands and Beryl's tiny ones, all seemed to be part of one mysterious movement. Stanley himself, big and solid, in his dark suit, took his ease, and Beryl tossed her bright head and pouted. Round her throat she wore an unfamiliar velvet ribbon. It changed her somehow, altered the shape of her face. But it was charming, Linda decided. The room smelled of lilies. There were two big jars of arums in the fireplace. Fifteen two? Fifteen four? And the pair is six, and a run of three is nine, said Stanley, so deliberately he might have been counting sheep. I've nothing but two pairs, said Beryl, exaggerating her woe because she knew how he loved winning. The cribbage pegs were like two little people going up the road together, turning around the sharp corner and coming down the road again. They were pursuing each other. 
They did not so much want to get ahead as to keep near enough to talk. To keep near. Perhaps that was all. But no. There was always one who was impatient and hopped away as the other came up and would not listen. Perhaps the white peg was frightened of the red one. Or perhaps he was cruel and would not give the red one a chance to speak. In the front of her dress Beryl wore a bunch of pansies, and once, when the little pegs were side by side, she bent over and the pansies dropped out and covered them. What a shame, said she, picking up the pansies, just as they had a chance to fly into each other's arms. Farewell, my girl, laughed Stanley, and away the red peg hopped. The drawing-room was long and narrow, with glass doors that gave onto the veranda. It had a cream paper with a pattern of gilt roses, and the furniture which had belonged to old Mrs. Fairfield was dark and plain. A little piano stood against the wall with yellow pleated silk, let into the carved front. Above it hung an oil painting by Beryl of a large cluster of surprised-looking clematis. Each flower was the size of a small saucer, with a centre like an astonished eye fringed in black. But the room was not finished yet. Stanley has set his heart on a Chesterfield and two decent chairs. Linda liked it best as it was. Two big moths flew in through the window and round and round in the circle of lamplight. Fly away before it is too late. Fly out again. Round and round they flew. They seemed to bring the silence and the moonlight in with them on their silent wings. I've two kings, said Stanley. Any good? Quite good, said Beryl. Linda stopped rocking and got up. Stanley looked across. Anything the matter, darling? No, nothing. I'm going to find Mother. She went out of the room, and standing at the foot of the stairs, she called, but her mother's voice answered her from the veranda. The moon that Lottie and Keisha had seen from the storeman's wagon was full, and the house, the garden, the old woman and Glinda all were bathed in a dazzling light. I have been looking at the aloe, said Mrs. Fairfield. I believe it is going to flower this year. Look at the top there. Are those buds, or is it only an effect of light? As they stood on the steps, the high grassy bank on which the aloe rested rose up like a wave, and the aloe seemed to ride upon it like a ship with the oars lifted. Bright moonlight hung upon the lifted oars like water, and on the green wave glittered the dew. Do you feel it too? said Linda. And she spoke to her mother with the special voice that women use at night to each other, as though they spoke in their sleep or from some hollow cave. Don't you feel that it is coming towards us? She dreamed that she was caught up out of the cold water into the ship with the lifted oars and the budding mast. Now the oars fell, striking quickly, quickly. They rowed far away over the top of the garden trees, the paddocks, and the dark bush beyond. Ah, she heard herself cry, faster, faster, to those who were rowing. How much more real this dream was than that they should go back to the house where the sleeping children lay and where Stanley and Beryl played cribbage. I believe those are buds, said she. Let us go down into the garden, mother. I like that aloe. I like it more than anything here. And I am sure I shall remember it long after I've forgotten all the other things. She put her hand on her mother's arm, and they walked down the steps, round the island, and on to the main drive that led to the front gates. 
Looking at it from below, she could see the long, sharp thorns that edged the aloe leaves, and at the sight of them her heart grew hard. She particularly liked the long, sharp thorns. Nobody would dare to come near the ship or to follow after. Not even my Newfoundland dog, thought she, that I'm so fond of in the daytime. For she really was fond of him. She loved and admired and respected him tremendously. Oh, better than anyone else in the world. She knew him through and through. He was the soul of truth and decency, and for all his practical experience he was awfully simple, easily pleased and easily hurt. If only he wouldn't jump at her so and bark so loudly and watch her with such eager, loving eyes. He was too strong for her. She had always hated things that rush at her from a child. There were times when he was frightening, really frightening, when she just had not screamed at the top of her voice, You are killing me! And at those times she had longed to say the most coarse, hateful things. You know I am very delicate. You know as well as I do that my heart is affected. And the doctor has told you I may die any moment. I have had three great lumps of children already. Yes, yes, it was true. Linda snatched her hand from Mother's arm, for all her love and respect and admiration, she hated him. And how tender he always was after times like those. How submissive, how thoughtful. He would do anything for her. He longed to serve her. Linda heard herself saying in a weak voice, Stanley, would you light a candle? And she heard his joyful voice answer, Of course I will, my darling. And he leapt out of bed as though he were going to leap at the moon for her. It had never been so plain to her as it was at this moment. There were all her feelings for him, sharp and defined, one as true as the other, and there was this other, this hatred, just as real as the rest. She could have done her feelings up in little packets and given them to Stanley. She longed to hand him that last one for a surprise. She could see his eyes as he opened that. She hugged her folded arms and began to laugh silently. How absurd life was. It was laughable, simply laughable. And why this mania of hers to keep alive at all? For it really was a mania, she thought, mocking and laughing. What am I guarding myself for so preciously? I shall go on having children, and Stanley will go on making money, and the children and the gardens will grow bigger and bigger, with whole fleets of aloes in them for me to choose from. She had been walking with her head bent, looking at nothing. Now she looked up and about her. They were standing by the red and white camellia trees. Beautiful were the rich, dark leaves, spangled with light, and the round flowers that perch among them like red and white birds. Linda pulled a piece of verbena and crumpled it, and held her hands to her mother. Delicious, said the old woman. Are you cold, child? Are you trembling? Yes, your hands are cold. We'd better go back to the house. What have you been thinking about? said Linda. Tell me. I haven't really been thinking of anything. I wondered as we passed the orchard what the fruit trees were like, and whether we should be able to make much jam this autumn. There are splendid, healthy currant bushes in the vegetable garden. I noticed them today. I should like to see those pantry shelves thoroughly well stocked with our own jam. 12.
My darling Nan, don't think me a piggy wig because I haven't written before. I haven't had a moment, dear, and even now I feel so exhausted I can hardly hold a pen. Well, the dreadful deed is done. We have actually left the giddy whirl of town, and I can't see how we shall ever go back again, for my brother-in-law has bought this house lock, stock, and barrel, to use his own words. In a way, of course, it is an awful relief, for he has been threatening to take a place in the country ever since I've lived with them, and I must say the house and the garden are awfully nice, a million times better than that awful cubbyhole in town. But buried, my dear, buried isn't the word. We have got neighbours, but they are only farmers, big louts of boys who seem to be milking all day, and two dreadful females with rabbit teeth who brought us some scones when we were moving and said they would be pleased to help. But my sister, who lives a mile away, doesn't know a soul here, and I am sure we never shall. It's pretty certain nobody will ever come out from town to see us, because, though there is a bus, it's an awful old rattling thing with black leather sides that any decent person would rather die than ride in for six miles. Such is life. It's a sad ending for poor little Bee. I'll get to be a most awful frump in a year or two, and come and see you in a Macintosh and a sailor hat, tied on with a white china silk motor veil. So pretty. Stanley says that now we are settled, for after the most awful week of my life we really are settled. He is going to bring out a couple of men from the club on Saturday afternoons for tennis. In fact, two are promised as a great treat today. But, my dear, if you could see Stanley's men from the club, rather fattish, the type who look frightfully indecent without waistcoats, always with toes that turn in, rather, so conspicuous when you are walking about a court in white shoes, and they are pulling up their trousers every minute, don't you know, and whacking at imaginary things with their rackets. I used to play with them at the club last summer, and I am sure you will know the type when I tell you that after I'd been there about three times they all called me Miss Barrow. It's a weary world. Of course, Mother simply loves the place, but then I suppose when I am Mother's age I shall be content to sit in the sun and shell peas into a basin. But I'm not, not, not... What Linda thinks about the whole affair, per usual, I haven't the slightest idea. Mysterious as ever. My dear, you know that white satin dress of mine? I have taken the sleeves out entirely, put bands of black velvet across the shoulders, and two big red poppies off my dear sister's chapeau. It is a great success, though when I shall wear it I do not know. Beryl sat writing this letter at a little table in her room. In a way, of course, it was all perfectly true, but in another way it was all the greatest rubbish, and she didn't believe a word of it. No, that wasn't true. She felt all those things, but she didn't really feel them like that. It was her other self who had written that letter. It not only bored, it rather disgusted her real self. Flippant and silly, said her real self. Yet she knew that she'd send it, and she'd always write that kind of twaddle to Nan Pym. In fact, it was a very mild example of the kind of letter she generally wrote. Beryl leaned her elbows on the table and read it through again. The voice of the letter seemed to come up to her from the page. It was faint already, like a voice heard over a telephone, high, gushing, with something bitter in the sound. Oh, she detested it today. You've always got so much animation, said Nan Pym. That's why men are so keen on you. And she had added, rather mournfully, for men were not at all keen on Nan, who was a solid kind of girl with fat hips and a high colour. I can't understand how you can keep it up. 
But it is your nature, I suppose. What rot! What nonsense! It wasn't her nature at all. Good heavens, if she had ever been her real self with Nan Pym, Nanny would have jumped out the window with surprise. My dear, you know that white satin of mine. Beryl slammed the letter-case to. She jumped up, and half unconsciously, half consciously, she drifted over to the looking-glass. There stood a slim girl in white, a white serge skirt, a white silk blouse, and a leather belt drawn in very tightly at her tiny waist. Her face was heart-shaped, wide at the brows, and with a pointed chin, but not too pointed. Her eyes, her eyes were perhaps her best feature. They were such a strange, uncommon colour, greeny-blue with little gold points in them. She had fine black eyebrows and long lashes, so long that when they lay on her cheeks you positively caught the light in them, someone or other had told her. Her mouth was rather large. Too large? No, not really. Her underlip protruded a little. She had a way of sucking it in that somebody else had told her was awfully fascinating. Her nose was her least satisfactory feature. Not that it was really ugly, but it was not half as fine as Linda's. Linda really had a perfect little nose. Hers spread rather, not badly, and in all probability she exaggerated the spreadiness of it just because it was her nose, and she was so awfully critical of herself. She pinched it with the thumb and first finger, and made a little face. Lovely, lovely hair, and such a mass of it. It had the colour of fresh-fallen leaves, brown and red with a glint of yellow. When she did it in a long plait, she felt it on her backbone like a long snake. She loved to feel the weight of it dragging her head back, and she loved to feel it loose, covering her bare arms. Yes, my dear, there is no doubt about it, you really are a lovely little thing. At the words her bosom lifted, she took a long breath of delight, half closing her eyes. But even as she looked, the smile faded from her lips and eyes. Oh, God, there she was, back again, playing the same old game. False, false as ever. False as when she'd written to Nan Pym. False even when she was alone with herself now. What had that creature in the glass to do with her? And why was she staring? She dropped down to one side of her bed and buried her face in her arms. Oh, she cried, I am so miserable, so frightfully miserable. I know that I am silly and spiteful and vain. I am always acting a part. I am never my real self for a moment. And plainly, plainly she saw her false self running up and down the stairs, laughing a special trilling laugh if they had visitors, standing under the lamp if a man came to dinner, so that he could see the light on her hair, pouting and pretending to be little girl when she was asked to play the guitar. Why? She even kept it up for Stanley's benefit. Only last night, when he was reading the paper, her false self had stood beside him and leaned against his shoulder on purpose. Hadn't she put her hand over his, pointing out something so that he could see how white her hand was beside his brown one? How despicable! Despicable! Her heart was cold with rage. It's marvellous how you keep it up, said she to the false self. But then it was only because she was so miserable, so miserable. If she had been happy and leading her own life, her false life would cease to be. She saw the real barrel, a shadow, a shadow. 
faint and unsubstantial she shone. What was there of her except the radiance? And for what tiny moments she was really she? Beryl could almost remember every one of them. At those times she had felt, Life is rich and mysterious and good, and I am rich and mysterious and good too. Shall I ever be that Beryl forever? Shall I? How can I? And was there ever a time when I did not have a false self? But just as she had got that far, she heard the sound of little steps running along the passage. The door handle rattled. Keisha came in. Aunt Barrow, Mother says will you please come down. Father is home with a man and lunch is ready. Botheration! How she had crumpled her skirt, kneeling in that idiotic way. Very well, Keisha. She went over to the dressing table and powdered her nose. Keisha crossed too, and unscrewed a little pot of cream and sniffed it. Under her arm she carried a very dirty calico cat. When Aunt Beryl ran out of the room, she sat the cat up on the dressing table and stuck the top of the cream jar over its ear. Now look at yourself, said she sternly. The calico cat was so overcome by the sight that it toppled over backwards and bumped and bumped onto the floor. And the top of the cream jar flew through the air and rolled like a penny in a round on the linoleum and did not break. But for Keisha it had broken the moment it flew through the air, and she picked it up hot all over and put it back on the dressing table. Then she tiptoed away far too quickly and airily. End of part four and the conclusion of Prelude by Catherine Mansfield.